<laughs> Hello, my name is Nick, and this is Insignis. Are you paying attention? Good. Let's talk about concentration. So I was going to go through some research, see what the great world of science knows about concentration these days, and I found some review articles, some research, and it all seemed really kind of impractical and sort of boring. So instead, I watched a whole bunch of YouTube videos and pulled from my own experiences just to come up with a few tips about staying focused when you're getting some work done. So just a few tips, really. But number one, motivation. Motivation, let's say it leads to success. Success then leads to further motivation. I, I kind of do this all the time. If you have a little bit of kind of like a small successes in your day to kind of keep you going about things that you're, you're doing, um, just small rewards. I do this with kind of to-do lists. So like I have daily to-do lists that come up every single day and there are a lot of the things that I want to accomplish every day. Um, some of them might be working on my podcast, um, studying for something. Did I do any exercise today? And these are things that I want to do every day anyways, but they come up on my daily to-do list because they're right there. I'm reminded of them so I don't forget they're there. And then when I complete them, I get to check off my little box and that feels good. I got a little bit of dopamine from that, so I like that. All right, number two. Obviously, avoiding distractions and procrastination is paramount to trying to get things done. It's the literal opposite of focusing and concentration. So the best choice usually is to not let it be a choice. Take your phone, throw it across the room, or do something a little bit less violent and just leave it in another room before you go to where you're studying. Even if you're working in a coffee shop or something like that, take it, put it in your bag, zip up your bag, and put your bag at your feet where it's not within line of sight. Um, besides that, though, of course, you have other options. You can download apps like Self-Control, uh, which you can even have on your laptop, of course, and this will let you shut down programs or websites just to kind of make it not an option and sort of break some of the bad habit websites that sort of delay you from getting your work done. Now, a lot of people talk about flow, getting into this flow state where you're super productive. Some people say that you're able to work like 10 times more, get 10 times more work done. And a lot of people reference this in the context of extreme athletes when they go into some kind of super trance while they're working. I can't say that this is necessarily a practical goal to try to achieve. I, it's hard to say exactly a lot about it. There's not a lot that's fleshed out about definite, like you can enter the flow state or if you're a Buddhist monk or something like that. It's hard to say. Um, but my advice is do everything your body needs to do and have that done before you're trying to sit down and really concentrate on something. This way your mind is kind of free to tackle the task at hand. So if you need to relax and you haven't done so already, relax. If you haven't slept properly, take a nap. If you need to exercise, if you haven't gotten up and moved or done anything yet, do that. And then once everything is done, once the needs of your body are kind of taken care of, your mind is much freer. I'm gonna mention the Pomodoro technique here because it's so widely used. It was never a technique that I particularly loved, but basically you need a timer, which you can set to 20 or 30 minutes or whatever works for you. And then you work until that timer goes off. No excuses, no if, no ands, no buts. And you really you just get into it. It doesn't matter how slowly you think your brain is working, you work until that timer goes off. And when that timer does go off, you take a break. 
you set your timer again, you set it for five minutes, you stand up, you do something, watch a YouTube video, I don't know anything you like, do something, do some push-ups if you're so inclined, and then when that timer goes off again, you repeat the cycle, you work for another 20, 30 minutes. Of course, there's no obligation if to, for you to stop working once your work timer goes off. If you can't keep working or you're really into it, keep working. But when that break timer goes off, break is done, break is always done, and then you have to get back to work. This next one is actually inspired by my little sister, and that's kind of, it's finding someone to study with or to work with who is going to be help, kind of holding you accountable. Um, I know that during my undergraduate degree, my sister would like to come to the library with me, and she would actually sit a row or two behind me in the library. And this way, when she looked up from her working and her studying, and she saw that I was still studying, she'd be motivated not to stop, and she would get back to work. Of course, this isn't available to most people necessarily to have someone like that to hold you accountable every time you want to study, but you can turn to things like YouTube. Actually, there's a lot of YouTube channels and YouTube streamers that do this sort of thing, and they have these kind of study with me or work with me videos, and you can leave that open, and that way your YouTube's already occupied so you can't use it to do something else, and you see that this person is sitting there and they are working. Alternatively, you could make your own work with me videos because I'm pretty sure that at least for the first few times, if you've got a camera looking at you and you've got a little bit of motivation, a little bit of stress to keep working, if you feel like there's other people holding you accountable, I'd say you're probably more likely to keep working. Um, this next one is one that I've been trying out. This is going to be the last one for us, though. I'm trying out for the last uh, week or so, and this is something which I'm going to call a distraction sheet. So I'm sitting at my laptop, I'm trying to get work done, and things are constantly flitting through my brain. I'm constantly thinking of other ideas, things I want to check, things I want to Google, and instead of going, oh, just swiping over the next page and looking them up or clarifying something, I've got a sheet of paper with a pen that's next to my laptop. And I just, I write down everything that I'm thinking. I just write one quick line, I just write a bullet point for something that I want to look up or something that I want to check or clarify. And this way, I feel like my brain is satisfied that I've kind of addressed the idea and that I haven't like totally given it up. So I don't have to ruminate on it because I'll know I'll get to it later. And I don't stop what I'm doing. This way I continue what I'm doing and I've just, I've written a note on it. And then when I'm done, when I'm ready to take a little bit of a break, I've got this short list of things that I want to do. And honestly, a lot of the time, I'm not so interested in a lot of things on the list. They, a lot of the times they don't really matter. They just seem depressing for kind of a split second. Um, but besides that, I'll often just go through my list and I'll look everything up really quick or do whatever I need to do with them. Send out an email if that's what I remember to do. And uh, it didn't disturb my kind of work. It didn't disturb how things were going. So I actually enjoy this and I would recommend it for other people. Okay, guys, on to today's paper. So sociologists have long thought that proximity is kind of a major driving force behind the formation of sort of social relationships and, then, and therefore the exchange of knowledge and collaboration between people. This, this, of course, makes sense. You have to be close to people to kind of communicate with them, certainly in the past at least. So when we imagine a classical work office space, setting separated by walls and other barriers, we don't imagine it to be a good place to foster collaboration, especially when the removal of those walls could bring us closer together, it makes it easier for us to speak to one another. And this kind of collaboration is important to make up kind of a collective intelligence, a hive mind, if you will, and allow people to get more from the sum of their parts. Yes, guys, that's right, talking about synergy. Of course, this all makes intuitive sense. If I can see you, you'd imagine I'd be more likely to talk to you. 
but is this actually how we behave? Would this help us be more productive? Would this give us better ideas and kind of have the company as a whole work better? Or is it necessary to kind of pen us up to keep us from getting overwhelmed by stimulus so that the smaller amount of socializing that we have can be more meaningful, kind of saving us from ourselves? So this is actually what this paper looked at, whether or not having an open workspace actually leads to more collaboration, to more person-to-person -person interaction than if we've got kind of walls and your sort of classical workspace as we have it. But boundaries serve a purpose. We set them up for a reason in the first place. If you have walls, then you have actually more control even more knowledge in a way. You know who can see you and you know who can't, who has information and who doesn't. So in the past, evidence has been kind of a mix as to the benefit of open workspaces. While it seems like it might be more conductive to collaboration and sort of collective intelligence, even employee satisfaction, you can't really know for sure until you look into it. Unfortunately, kind of the, the plural of anecdote is not data, as they say. So there's not necessarily a shortage of large companies in America. And with some diligence, the authors of this paper were able to find two companies that were switching from cubicle-based workspaces into open work environments without walls or dividers. So the authors measured two types of interaction, face-to-face, -face, and that is people physically speaking to each other, and digital communications by way of emails and instant messages. So the goal of this study was essentially to answer this question. What is the effect on going from cubicles to open workspaces on the volume and type of interaction? The companies using the study were American Fortune 500 companies that were changing from cubicle environment to an open office format without dividing walls. All people were required to sit in roughly the same places in the new arrangement. There was two studies, so this was actually done twice and followed on two separate occasions by the authors. In both studies, roughly 40% of the employees on the floor agreed to be part of the study. Ideally, everyone would have participated, but this is the real world. So each participant was asked to wear a little box around their neck all day, every day at work, and what the authors call a sociometric badge, because it kind of looked like that was hanging on a lanyard, and from which you were able to capture who you were facing with an infrared sensor, and then microphones were able to tell who was talking and who was listening and how much of each of those you did during your interactions. And also the participants' emails and instant messages were recorded to get an idea of sort of digital communication between them as well. The data was collected for 15 workdays or three weeks prior to the change, and then three months after the change for another 15 days. So from the first study, the total face-to-face -face interaction decreased by 72%. So we have 72% less face-to-face -face interaction once you switch to an open workspace. From 5.8 hours a day to 1.7 hours a day of face-to-face -face interaction. Meanwhile, even though you could see everyone else on the floor, digital interactions actually increased um, by, to compensate for this by increasing by 56% emails sent and receiving 20% more emails and then being CC'd on 41% more emails. Instant messages also increased by nearly 70%, with a 75% increase in total words. To, so, to, kind of, to sum that up, in this study, in this uh, experiment, a switching to an open office space design to, in order to increase interaction actually made people talk to each other face-to-face -face less. Additionally, using the company's own data to evaluate their performance metrics, uh, they were said to have declined. So speaking to each other less didn't mean people were buckling down on their work. 
Now, the second study that was done within this article was designed in very much the same way, except the data was collected for eight weeks, starting three months prior to the switch, and then for eight weeks, two months after the switch. And then from the second study, the data was pretty well replicated. Face-to-face -face interactions decreased by about 70%, and emails increased by about 40%. Interestingly, or perhaps not interestingly, gender did not affect changes in interactions, so this means that neither gender was more chatty than the other. Um, there was, however, a side effect of dislocation to decrease the likelihood of face-to-face -face interaction with increasing distance, and this makes sense. You usually don't speak to people who are farther away from you. If they're close to you, you'll probably talk to them more. So when all in all, what have we learned from this? We set out to see if creating open and unbound offices would increase interactions. So after these two empiric field studies were done by the authors, the answer was both obvious and consistent. Open office spaces seemed to decrease face-to-face -face interactions by about 70%, and then some of that slack was being picked up by digital communications. And I, I read these results, and I read this paper, and I was like, isn't this frustrating? It seems like such a nice utopian little idea while well, the world can exit from sort of a 1984-esque um, kind of strategy of working and then exit through stage right and walk into a better and happier world of smiles and communication. Instead, we just get open pastures of employees trying desperately like emus to bury their heads in the sand in order to hide in plain sight. The modern version of this, of course, are very large noise-canceling headphones, which are both functional and a statement to those around you. It's not that we don't like talking to people, but humans like a little bit of privacy. It's like our own little hermit crab home that we can bring along with us wherever we go. Overstimulation is just that. It's overly stimulating. Of course, like any study, there are pitfalls and caveats to this data, like those little boxes around people's necks measuring how much you socialize. I'm not sure how much I trust those little boxes, if I'm going to be honest, but that's another story. In the end, though, I guess we're back to the drawing board. When both extremes of the workspace environment prove to be true to their names, too extreme, a happy middle ground should kind of be sought. So let's get some architects and sort of workspace engineers on that. What's the best way? What's the best amount of openness to foster the best amount of work and get the most amount of useful collaboration? All right, guys, today's paper was The Impact of Open Workspaces on Human Collaboration by Bernstein et al. I've been your host, Nick Zelt, and this is Insignis. Thank you.